You're listening to The Healthy Sensitive. Hello and welcome to The Healthy Sensitive, a podcast for highly sensitive people, introverts, creatives, who are just trying to figure out how to both live in the world robustly and figure out how to do that while making sure that their little highly sensitive brains don't feel, well, overstimulated. (laughs) My name is Leah Burkhart, the hostess on the show, and today I want to talk about a long overdue topic. So, I had every good intention of (laughs) having a conversation that uh, revolved around men. Uh, I wanted that conversation to take place in June because June was Men's Health Awareness Month. Uh, But see, funny story, in the midst of all of the, you know, pandemic and uh, economic uncertainty and civil unrest... Uh, And then, of course, on top of that, my personal life, I was moving and changing jobs. So with all of that going on, uh, June was a bit of a chaotic month, and it just got overlooked. And at first, I was a little ashamed about it, but quite honestly, the metaphor of it's almost sort of perfect, because I feel like that's what's happening to men in general right now. It's odd. I mean, on the one hand, certainly white, heterosexual, cisgendered, men uh, are we're all whispering or yelling about their positions of power um, one such being in particular not gonna name names uh, but on the other hand we are doing its opposite so it, it's I don't know I'm really fascinated by this especially as a woman because I can't speak to what it feels like to be a man and I I mean, what I can say is that I have really near and dear friends who are men. And the the more digging I start doing around what it is to be a man in America, you know, men also have their unique and specific set of challenges. No one gets out of this life alive and no one seems to get out of it without some bumps and bruises along the way. And while women have been in the position, I think, of being sort of um, overlooked for a really long time. And I think it's, I mean, especially as a woman, I'm I'm delighted by, well, maybe not delighted because it's not like the conversations are lovely, but I'm proud of the fact that women as a whole are coming together in an attempt at having healthy conversations, at uniting, at saying, hey, we are not willing to be overlooked. I think there's value in that. And I don't even think it's a think. (laughs) There just is. And at the same time, I mean, we are all a part and are participants in creating the culture that we have. You know, I like to listen to different, a variety of different voices from Sam Harris to Joe Rogan, of course. I mean, who's not listening to Joe Rogan these days? Uh, But also... Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro. I mean, I, I want to hear from people who are thoughtful thinkers and who may think differently than me. 
And I think it was Jordan Peterson who said, you know, we keep talking about toxic masculinity. And yes, it does exist. But if we want to have a conversation about toxic masculinity, we also need to have a conversation about toxic femininity. And in essence, what he was trying to say is there's there are people who are living well who are masculine (laughs) and there are people who are living well who are feminine. There are also people who are exhibiting this shadow traits of what it is to be a masculine, have a masculine temperament. And of course the same is true with femininity. And he was, I I think that's a solid point. And the, when I heard it, I thought, yeah, you know, that is interesting. What are the challenges, the trials and tribulations of men in general? And here are some of the pointers or points that I found in the midst of my search. So 93% of prisoners are men. 93%? I mean, I guess that sort of makes sense given what, you know, that in my mind, when I think of a prisoner, I rarely, rarely is it the case that the image that gets conjured is of a woman. It's a man. Well, apparently my, my mental conjuring is sort of linked with reality. 93%. 77% of suicides are men. 77%. Which is interesting because theoretically women are the ones who are suffering from depression at higher levels. Um, men suffer more often from addiction. Um, they're less likely to be diagnosed with depression and given appropriate treatment. So this I thought was really interesting. Because the more digging I did around this, because it's like, really, men are less likely to be diagnosed? Is it because they suffer from depression less? Sort of like the what I alluded to just a, a sentence or two ago. Uh, and it appears to be the case that men, when they are depressed, just exhibit the signs differently. So when women become depressed, and again, these are broad generalizations, and there are outliers in both camps, and, you know, all... Men and women are all just humans. Having said all of that, though, in general, when women become depressed, the signs of depression are, will often be sadness, apathy, um, disentangling from things that used to bring them joy. Uh, There's a a low energy quality to it. And, And women are more likely to go and seek help, partially because... I mean, it might partially be because of how they're wired. I mean, for example, when women are stressed, there's that whole tend and befriend tendency that appears to be less, well, at least we don't see it as often in men, but maybe physiologically it's the same yearning is there. We don't know. But um, so maybe that's part of what's going on. But in men, when men are depressed, it it shows itself as it, 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 manifest differently. So for men, it's more likely to be the case that they'll be aggressive, uh, flippant. Um, the apathy comes in again. I mean, with depression, apathy sort of part of the game. But because of that, I mean, you can imagine, right? If a man, if there's a human being who's being aggressive, there's not likely to be someone who says, hey, you know, are, are you depressed? <laughs> I mean, um, most of the time it any kind of aggression is going to inspire defensiveness in another person, not the desire to help, to soothe. And it's not necessarily going to elicit compassion and empathy. 
And so, and these men are very, they're not likely to go to a therapist and talk their problems through or even necessarily seek help in any capacity. Maybe they need medication and they're not going to go seek it because it's not manifesting the way that we've all come to understand what depression means. Uh, Men are applying to university in lower numbers. That's another issue. So in a world where education, well, I guess it kind of depends because on the one hand, education is becoming less valuable. You're seeing all kinds of people going into vocational positions and, and doing quite well. And people on the flip side who are getting really fancy degrees in insert some liberal arts here and just ending up in student loan debt and serving coffee. I don't mean to be so callous about it, but as a person who's had to work pretty hard to pay off her student loan debts, um, yeah, anyway. So then, in addition to that, and men die about five to ten years earlier than women. And there's a physician, Dr. Thomas Pearls, who believes that 70% of that is caused by lifestyle. So there's, it's not just built into the genetic code. There's something linked with the way men are behaving in the world that's leading them to die and die sooner, on average. So these are the challenges of men more broadly. And any one of them deserves a moment of pause, a moment to just stop and say, whoa, women are not the only beings who are suffering. We are all suffering. And to be fair, when feminists speak on this in in nuanced ways, they do speak to these challenges. Uh, Because ultimately, when you, you know, because a lot of people, as soon as you say the word feminist, you hear everybody and their mother go like, either they're championing it with gusto or they're hissing. (laughs) Um, But when people talk about, quote unquote, the patriarchy, um, it's really, it's not necessarily, I mean, some women, certainly some even men, I imagine, are, are trying to demonize men. But really, it's demonizing or at least challenging a system we've created, we have collaborated on, mind you. We all co-created this culture. Every day that we participate in it, we are co-collaborators, like co-creators. But we are all contributing to our environment such as it looks. You look at men and women, and here's an example. I was listening to a, uh, an audiobook, and a woman was talking about, you know, speaking with a girlfriend, and the two were talking about one of their husbands, uh, you know, and this gentleman who's married to one of the two women at some point had said, you know, women talk all day long about how they want men to be more open, to be more um, vulnerable. But that's just not true. Uh, Because when I express vulnerability, I can feel my wife pull away. And even the researcher storyteller, self-described, Brene Brown, said something similar. She talked about how when she would speak with her husband and she'd go on and on about vulnerability and wanting him to open up and he'd say, well, that's bullshit. You know, you want me to be tough. You want me to be stoic. I know that. I can feel it. And even Brene Brown had to stop for a second and say, whoa, you know, maybe he's not wrong. So we we are contributing to... Um, the boxes that we want men and women to both fit into. And women have started to unpack the toxicity that can come with that. Because the upside to having a box is that you can kind of feel like you have a place. You feel like you have a space for belonging. You know how to behave. You know what to do and how to navigate the world. 
that can be the upside. You know, boxes aren't always bad. You know, having a label can be empowering. It can provide a context. It can help build your story and stories are really powerful. But on the other hand, it's just the shadow side of having a boxed identity is that the minute you step outside of it, the minute that your set your experiences don't fit in the box, well, now there's this sort of cognitive dissonance. There's this painful experience of, wait, the way I'm experiencing reality isn't the way I've been told I should. Where do I go from here? And so a lot of men, you know, women are pigeoned into, you must always be pleasing. You must always do, as Brene Brown says, you must always do everything perfectly all the time. And this is the most important part. Don't ever let anyone see you sweat. That's what women have sort of been told more recently. But men's narrative is just as limiting. You know, you must be tough. You must be tough. You must always be the one in control. You must not buckle. You must not be weak. And of course, the reality is that we are all vulnerable. We are all weak sometimes. We're also all strong and capable sometimes. And so there's value, I think, in bringing the conversation, you know, talking a bit more about, okay, yeah, it's great. We, we've all come to understand that, I mean, especially in looking at the civil unrest that we're watching unfold in front of us, it's like, wow, we are all in a lot of pain. Conservatives, liberals, it doesn't matter. I mean, even last week when I was talking about the, the disagreement that occurred between myself and my neighbor, I mean, I identify as someone, politically speaking, who's more liberal. Uh, and he clearly was more conservative. And it wasn't that my values are better than his or vice versa. It's just that they're so different. It, we have completely different slices of reality. And it took hours to sort of unpack all of the the um, this, the confusion around where we were both coming from. You know, he was coming from a space of a single man who's just like, I don't know what to do with the situation. I don't know what's happening. And he's looking around him in the culture and seeing a Me Too movement that's, you know, kind of putting men on the defensive, going, whoa, 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 for years you told me to act like this. And men aren't wrong. You know, men and women both. I've spoken to women who, when faced with the decision to choose between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, chose Donald Trump and were not concerned about his behavior or his flippant disregard, seeming flippant disregard for women's rights or even women's dignity. That was how I looked at it. But that's not how all women looked at it. Some women were sort of like, what? I want a man in there. Like, I'm sorry, but sorry, not sorry. I I don't want to have, you know, I didn't, I don't trust Hillary Clinton to be able to do the job right. And quite frankly, I want a man at the helm. It's not just men (laughs) who are uh, championing very limited views of what masculinity should look like. Women do it too. And do it in pretty large numbers, mind you. So there you have it. So like when my neighbor is sort of saying, hey, a whole lot of men are just kind of confused. We don't know where to go from here. You know, (laughs) that's not, they've got a point. We are all confused. And I think that's sort of where we're at right now politically is we, men and women both need to improve the way we navigate in the world. Women on the whole are in a space where we're needing to learn to be more assertive, more clear, you know, more open about our wants and our needs. 
more willing to be unpleasing. And men are on the flip side, needing to learn to, to soften, to be more open to, and, and I'm not saying that there aren't plenty of men out there who are doing, who are doing this beautifully already, just as there are many women who are doing assertive really well already. But both of us are in this space where we need to learn to behave differently. We need to improve, but we're just learning. It's a clumsy process to do that. And in the process of learning, you know, it's, it's really uncomfortable and it puts everyone on the defensive. So if you think collectively women coming out and sort of being like, hey, no, we won't take this anymore. But collectively, we're not doing a graceful job of it. You know, some women are doing a good job, but other women, you know, you, you hear horrifying stories of, you know, women being manipulative or even potentially lying or not being quite clear or being partially responsible for the conflicts that occur. Not, here's a good example. When you listen to, uh, I listened to the audiobook version, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's uh, Talking with Strangers. He talks about rape as an example and he brings it into the fold in a more nuanced way. You know, he talks about how in so many cases of rape, alcohol is involved. And then he goes into a deep dive of, well, what's going on when we're drinking alcohol? Why is it the case that, you know, many cultures all over the world, you know, drink tons of alcohol and rape doesn't happen. And he talks about how when we drink alcohol, it sort of, we get this tunnel vision. And so we become a product of our environment. Well, if most of the situations in which, you know, in in America, at least where we're drinking alcohol are frat parties, which are highly sexualized, highly, you know, so he just, he kind of unpacks it and says, okay, so if you you pit that alongside the fact that when women drink alcohol, they can't tolerate as much of it. And so they're more likely to have blackouts and be, you know, and the communicate. And then you consider at this exact same time that men, when they're drinking alcohol, they're a product of their environment. Like it just gets messy such that by the end of the day, you have a man and a woman who are looking at each other, the woman sure that she has been raped and the man sure that it was consensual. And if you were to put a lie detector test on both of them, both of them would think they were being honest. This is the world that we live in. That's not 100% of the cases. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is it's hard when you're in a situation when you collectively, we are all in a place where we have to do better. And to do better, we have to learn, but learning requires a willingness to, to kind of bumble around and, and stumble. And we're all doing that, men and women both. And the consequences of the bumbling and the stumbling for men is that they're feeling, you know, that they're already dealing with all of the challenges that come with having to live in a highly uh, patriarchal, I'll say, culture. Again, 93% of them are in prison, are 93% of the prisoners are men, 77%, 77% of suicides are men. You know, they're dying sooner, like they are suffering too. That's just men in general, by the way. So because this is the healthy sensitive, now we move into, well, the double whammy of being a highly sensitive male. Whoa, I mean... And I, I have, I'm very close to a number of men who are, uh, who have nervous systems who I think would potentially qualify for being an HSP. I don't know that they would identify that way. That's none of my business. But um, some of the traits that are associated with being an HSP, these men uh, have, they hold, they, they, I don't know how to say that. I have a trait. Yeah, these are traits they have. 
And it's, so, I mean, imagine you live in a world, like at least as a woman, when I say, you know, I'm a highly sensitive person, there's a kind of patting on the head, a sort of, oh, sweetie, that's cute. Uh, There might be some, some, you know, like a little bit of patronizing-ness that goes on there, like, oh, you're a highly sensitive person, that's so sweet. But I'm a woman, and I'm a white, petite, heterosexual, cisgendered woman, no less. Me saying I'm highly sensitive is not a radical thing. It's pleasing, in fact, on some level at least. It's not always my authentic, you know, like just because I'm sensitive doesn't mean I don't get angry. I absolutely do. Just because I'm sensitive doesn't mean I don't lash out and hurt people's feelings. I absolutely do. But to say that I'm highly sensitive is not an inherently, um, I'm not challenging the status quo when I do that. Not really. But with a man of any background to say, I am highly sensitive, that does challenge the status quo because you're not supposed to be. So just to kind of review again, the four primary characteristics that are associated with high sensitivity There's depth of processing. So highly sensitive people chew on things longer. And so how that might manifest is someone who, you know, doesn't just, they might think before they speak uh, in watching a violent film, it will be kind of jarring and they'll, you know, a highly sensitive person will chew on it for weeks. Whereas a non-HSP would just be like, well, that was, that was a good show. Next. (laughs) Um, So if you're looking at a highly sensitive male, he will be chewing on things longer and his, that's not encouraged. Dudes aren't supposed to do that. Dudes are just supposed to be decisive. Dudes are supposed to know what they want and just go for it. You're not supposed to chew on things. What the hell is wrong with you? Um, highly sensitive people also become more easily overstimulated. And that's just, because remember, when I'm using the word sensitive, I'm not just saying like, oh, your feelings get hurt easily. It's just sensing your environment and responding to it. So again, overstimulation is a thing. Well, men aren't supposed to get overstimulated. They're supposed to be rough and tumble. They're supposed to, you know, they want to get on the ground and wrestle. They want to, I don't know, like you jump off a cliff, go parachuting, go get the girl, overpower, do all of those things in it and that's overstimulated. Like, what the fl- What the what? What's wrong with you? And so for, if I, a woman, say, oh, I'm just, I'm kind of feeling overwhelmed. No one in the room is necessarily going to stop, look over, would cock their eyebrow. Not really. I mean, they might roll their eyes sort of like, oh, cute, little liberal snowflake, you know, something like that. But it's not going to be wildly out of, out of the range of what a woman is supposed to feel supposed to in quotes but a man that's different you're not supposed to get overstimulated you're supposed to love being in chaos you're supposed to own the chaos the next one is emotional sensitivity um, emotional granularity that's definitely not so here's the thing with emotions the the downside to being so the upside of being a woman in this particular culture in my case the united states is I'm allowed a very large array of emotional experiences. I'm allowed to communicate my emotions with nuance and with uh, sort of 
like a deep dive into what's going on in my emotional arena. The downside, though, is there is this one chunk of emotions I'm just not supposed to have, and that's anger. And, you know, it's strange because I've been in relationships and have had friendships where people have told me the opposite and said, no, no, get angry, you know, get comfortable with that. But I'm tr- I've been trained not to do that. And when women become angry, they we collectively get uncomfortable with angry women. Uh, we especially get uncomfortable with angry women who are of any other color other than white. Um, this is a really great example of that is, um, if you've ever read Michelle Obama's memoir, Becoming, you know, she talks about the, the real, I don't know that she used the word pain, but just the level of energy that was required to keep herself composed, um, in the midst of being attacked for just being, for just existing. Uh, and she was labeled an angry black woman. And it's like, she wasn't angry. She was passionate. She had, she had ideas and she was willing to communicate them. And she was assertive. That's how she felt in her own skin. But that's not how she was perceived. So women, certainly of any color, don't, they, we might say, oh, come on, girl, go get them, girl. You go, girl. But we don't mean it. <laughs> like, not really. I mean, you go, girl, but okay, you know, don't, don't go too far. So anger isn't something that we are encouraged to exude. That's kind of a bummer. Now on the flip side, for men, the upside to being a man is being dominant, being angry, being assertive, even aggressive, is championed. You're allowed to throw a kind of conniption fit. It's not out of the range of what we would expect from a man. But just don't do any of that other stuff. You can be jovial, but don't be jubilant. You can be happy, but don't don't express joy. You know, you can be angry, but you can't be sad. Sadness, you know, (laughs) uh uh-uh. No, no. Don't be vulnerable. Don't be sad. Sadness is weakness. Don't go there. You're not allowed to be sad. Now, if you're closed off to most emotions, you're allowed to be stoic and you're allowed to be angry. And you're allowed to be charming. That's pretty much what I... When I see how men are portrayed, like a real, like a man's man, a real man. Again, you're allowed to be charming. You're allowed to be strong and angry and aggressive. And you're allowed to just be copacetic, calm, stoic. Is it any wonder, like the weird political space that we're all having to occupy right now? Is anyone surprised? (laughs) Hello, this is the we've co-created this environment. We are we are responsible, and so for a highly sensitive man to be told, you only get to be angry. I can tell you, as as a highly sensitive human being, like just with the nervous system that I have, anger is extremely um, activating. It's it requires a, a tremendous amount of energy to sustain. And it's, an, it's very uncomfortable for me. And the men that I know who have this trait will say the same thing. They don't want to go there to, to anger. Um, it's not that they're unwilling to, to feel it. It's just to express it. If it like, it's so much energy. Whew. And these same men feel all of the feels. Not in the sense of, you know, crying at the drop of a hat or being uh, weak. But it's just... 
they the way their system is built, their like their nervous systems aren't really conditioned to just be stoic, angry, and charming. They have a tendency to feel all of the emotions. And they're not encouraged to allow that to be expressed in any way. So there's no outlet for these emotions. And yet they're feeling all of them intensely. Uh, the next one is sensory sensitivity. So that's the... Uh, sensitivity to one's like to, to smell, to sense, to sights, uh, to sounds. We, there's a, a subtlety that we might be keen and in, keying into, and that too is not something that is encouraged in men. But what's really interesting, just so you know, like we used to, like we now kind of come to see this as like, well, yeah, no, that's not manly. We don't like it. But that hasn't always been the case. Interestingly enough. There were times when sensitive men were revered. Sensitive men were considered to be intellectuals, and intellectual men were powerful. And to have a more soft way of you know, navigating the world suggested uh, uh, good breeding, high education. They were the men that were sought after and pined for. It's only kind of recently in, in the large grand scheme of things that this, or maybe there's more of an ebb and flow. That might be a better way to put it. In the larger historical context, there have been times when sensitive men who are who who process things deeply and think things through, who aren't a big fan of overstimulation, who have the capacity for expressing their emotions effectively, and who are sensitive to their sort of their, their environment, that was seen as a good thing. It just right now we're not in that space, unfortunately. So it's a double whammy for highly sensitive men because they are contending with, you know, being in the minority in the sense that there's only 20% of us. I mean, wherever you go, there's 80% of people don't experience the world this way. And yet of highly sensitive people, men make 50% of it. So it's not linked with our sex chromosomes at all. There's an equal number of men and women who are highly sensitive. It's just that women are more comfortable saying it. Men are less likely also to go digging around to find the language for all of this because they're not encouraged to. This is, um, yeah, it's, it's a crazy world that we're currently living in. And so I just, I guess I wanted to spend the time in this podcast to open up the conversation for that and, and say, Hey, it, women are not the only ones going through this because as a woman it's I spend a lot of my time talking about my own personal experiences and so and it can get pretty easy to kind of say well we're in this environment where you know oh but men are fine they're doing just fine and they're not I mean they are just as much as women are but they're not just like women aren't so with having said all of that okay well what do you do about it if you are a highly sensitive man and you're sort of nodding along going, yeah, 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 I, yeah, this does suck. I don't like it. <laughs> so, but what do I do about it? Some of the things that I have, like in terms of um, strategies that can be really powerful. The first, of course, is any mindfulness exercise. It, it cracked me up. I, I don't know if I mentioned this last week, but the gentleman who lives across the street from me, who again, very politically or politically oriented in a very different space. I, he mentioned in passing that he had trouble with sleep because I had said I was a health coach and that 
you know, I, I health educator and yeah, I used to have a lot of trouble with anxiety and sleep. And he said, Oh, how did you fix that? Cause I don't sleep super well. And I said, well, honestly, the game changer was meditation. And he said, do you think that a guy like me is going to do meditation? And he also went so far as to say, yeah. And I, I, I don't know. I feel like meditation is just like medication. Like you get reliant on something. And I thought, wow, that's, that is very interesting. Um, Okay. Uh, I said, well, is there anything in your life that when you do the thing, you lose time? And he thought about it and he said, well, yeah, but you'll laugh at me. And I'm like, Maybe. I mean, what is the thing? And he said, um, chopping wood, like, cause he has a property out in I don't know how many acres, but it was an absurd quantity, which I thought was fabulous. And he said, yeah, I, I there's something about just the rhythm of it and it's all I'm thinking about when I do it. And I said, well, congratulations, sir. That's meditation. So meditation is simply a singular focus for an extended, like you're, you're focusing on one thing for an extended period of time. That's meditation. And now the brain is built to, to think. And so it's not like thoughts won't bubble up when you're in the midst of a meditation exercise. That's what the brain's supposed to do. But the the exercise of meditation is corralling it and, and sort of, it's like taking a puppy and training the puppy. And so when people say, when he said, well, I don't want to become reliant on it. And I said, well, that's like saying you don't want to become reliant on exercise. Like, it, or reliant on food. <laughs> I mean, yeah, anything, if you become too preoccupied with it and you say, I need this or else I won't be able to do it. Like, sure. Uh, just as people can get addicted to food and addicted to exercise and even addicted to sex, I suppose you could get addicted to meditation. Um, I don't know what that would look like exactly, but the point is one strategy that can be extremely helpful is any kind of mindfulness exercise. And it, it should be something that looks like you. For me personally, I engage in, uh, yoga and then I do a sitting meditation and that feels great, but it doesn't have to look like that. It can be chopping wood. It can be washing the dishes. It can be anything. As long as what you're ultimately doing is just focusing on a singular thing for an extended period of time. So why is this helpful? When you engage in any kind of a mindfulness exercise, you're giving your brain, it's an exercise of the mind where you are able to distance yourself from your thoughts. So your assumptions, your thoughts, your feelings, you're able to look at them and just witness them without judgment. When you are able to do that in a sitting meditation or any kind of exercise, that starts to bleed over into your life. So it gives you that the space between you and your thoughts, between you and your experiences. So when you're out in the world, I know for me personally, when I'm out in the world and I'm feeling like there's busyness and it's loud, Having had a meditation practice for as long as I have, I'm now able to kind of divorce myself from that experience. Not divorce, yeah, that sounds like I'm blocking it out or something, but I'm able to just relax into it. Oh, I can think, this is busyness. And then when I start getting fatigued, it's like, oh, well, I'm fatigued. That's fine. The trouble and like this, the trouble comes for highly sensitive people in particular with this stuff when we start to, when we try and fight it. When we're looking at other people and going, well, they seem like they're doing it effortlessly and this sucks. It's like, I mean, 
okay. (laughs) But that's where the fatigue really starts to come in. Like you start draining yourself because you're having a tug of war with yourself. You're saying like you're experiencing a thing and then you're judging yourself for the experience. That's not helpful. It's one thing to say, wow, this is a busy day. I'm feeling tired. It's another thing to say, wow, this is a busy day. I'm feeling tired. And also, I hate that I'm tired because Joe Bob over there isn't. So meditation gives us the capacity to release the judgment part of our experiences. Um, Another really effective measure to use is exercise. Because if we are constantly on edge, that produces cortisol and adrenaline. One of the best ways to work with cortisol and adrenaline is to use it. You know, when we are stressed, and I know I've mentioned this an absurd quantity of times before, highly sensitive people have nervous systems that are stressed more often than the average person because our stress, like our, our responses are getting triggered more often. It's sort of like if you've got a layer of clothing removed from your physical body, you're going to feel the elements more acutely. Same concept. Because our nervous systems are just more uh, vigilant, all of the stimulus and the information that's like coming into the system feels more over, like it, it feels louder. It, it's like we're closer to the speaker so we can hear things more loudly. Well, if that's true, then our stress response is going to get activated more frequently. Well, the stress response isn't a bad thing. It's just the body responding to its environment and giving us the tools to react the way we need to, or at least the way our body thinks we might need to. So if our systems get the sense that there might be danger, well, it pumps up adrenaline and cortisol so that we can fight it off or run away or whatever it is we need to do. So if you're starting to feel, if that's the case where you're feeling that way all the time, exercise is phenomenal because it burns off that cortisol. It uses it and it utilizes, it takes advantage of the adrenaline that's pumping the heart. And when you do that over time, that can feel extremely empowering, that you feel strong. Forgive me, I just finished Michelle Obama's memoir, so this is like fresh in mind. But, you know, she talked about how she used to go to the gym, but then, you know, you have kids and there's all this. And her husband is going to the gym all the time. And she's just like, you know, must be nice. And, you know, when, when she was sitting in a therapist office, you know, trying to work through their challenges in their marriage, you know, they sort of cocked their eyebrows at her going, oh, that's very interesting, Michelle. When's the last time that you went to the gym? And then, of course, she realizes, oh, crap. (laughs) I guess I could make the time for myself. And she talked about how just in making that change, she went from feeling kind of like, um, I don't think she ever used the word victim, but, you know, feeling like she was just reacting to her life and going into a place where she felt strong again. Like, oh, I do have some command. That's what exercise does. Exercise uh, it increases our endorphins, which are painkillers, like the body's painkillers. Um, it increases our uh, memory, our, our brain functioning. It helps with the prefrontal cortex, just like meditation does. So exercise is absolutely phenomenal to help kind of release. It's a release valve for emotions that might not otherwise get, if you, you might not otherwise feel like you can express. Um, and then, of course, in terms of the you know, developing the capacity for an emotional range and and communication and all of that, um, having some kind of a creative outlet is 
really powerful. All of the men I know who have this trait and who are extremely uh, well adapted, they all have a creative outlet. They either it's music, uh, and I, it's so funny because the one man in particular I'm thinking of, the music he likes to engage in is like this heavy metal, like it's dark, it's rich, but it's the only space in his life where he really expresses anger and and frustrate like that kind of energy and he said yeah because i don't feel comfortable expressing it in any other arena um or they another gentleman i know is a writer so he likes to write poetry or he journals or he and it gives him an opportunity to release all of the emotional experiences he's having throughout the day another is a painter and some of these men have multiple of these outlets and Creative outlet doesn't have to mean airy-fairy light stuff. Like I said, one of them's, I mean, heavy metal music. I'm, what? It's like, how ironic is that, man? You're, you're, you have this vigilant nervous system and you're doing what? And he said, yeah, no, I know. It doesn't have to make sense. Like it, but I love it. And it, so it's just having some kind of a creative outlet that gives you the space to dump all of your emotions into the, the area and kind of play with them. And not just see it as being a problem. So those would be the top three things I would recommend for any person. Of course, the final one would be sleep. Always, always prioritizing sleep. Um, I mean, I could talk for hours about the importance of sleep, but that's a whole other podcast. (laughs) So this isn't going to be the only time that I talk about the, the challenges and trials and tribulations that are specific to highly sensitive men. But I just really wanted to bring this up to get the conversation started. And I, as I mentioned earlier, this was something I really wanted to be kind of part of a series uh, in June, as it was Men's Health Awareness Month, but it got kicked to the side because of all of the chaos in our lives right now, which, as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, seems appropriate. Uh, metaphorically speaking, it fits because I imagine, and based on what I'm hearing from men, that's kind of how they're feeling right now. Like, like the not kick to the side exactly, but it's almost like they're being held up as all powerful and they do have a lot of power, but they don't have all of it and they're confused and they're trying to figure out how to live their lives well. And they're being given a lot of mixed messages about what that should look like. And I feel like it's important for us to pause for a moment and acknowledge that challenge. So at any rate, Uh, Let's see, any updates? Not yet, but stuff is coming down on the pipe. So if you're curious about events, I'm going to start putting together more virtual events again. Uh, It was just, I I felt like for so long, um, there were so many people that were putting together, you know, like online events and classes. And it just, I felt like I was just being part of the noise. Um, I don't know, I wouldn't say things have calmed down necessarily now, but I think, you know, we've, we've reached a kind of odd equilibrium at the moment, at least. Um, and so I'm going to start putting out events that are online. You can, you know, sign up. There is, I'm as always, if anyone is ever interested in kind of doing any kind of a deep dive into these challenges, if you resonate with the content that I'm putting out and you feel like you want support in getting, you know, whether it's building your health capacity or whether it's, you know, improving on your relationships or you're interested in a job transition or, you know, even just trying to 
you, you feel like you've got a really good hold on what you're doing, but you want to try and monetize it, that's my jam right there. So uh, anyone who's interested in coaching, you can let me know. I am a health and wellness as well as a life coach and certified in both. And if you're interested in any of that, events that I'm offering, classes that I'm offering, uh, you know, membership site or individual coaching, just go to www.thehealthysensitive.com. And yeah, that's about it. I look forward to keeping in touch. I am in my new home, all moved in and feeling nice and grounded. So uh, get ready for more steady content. <laughs> okay, I'm going to stop now. Bye.